Howdy, listeners. Just a quick note that when recording this episode of Friendly Fire, John was returning from tour and was 30,000 feet in the air. So it sounds slightly different. After this, he returns to his home studio. Now please, enjoy the show. When Major Dan Kirby, played by John Wayne, arrives in Guadalcanal, he's there to whip a relaxed Hellcat squadron into flying shape. Unfortunately for him, he was not everyone's first choice for the command. But Kirby's hardened exterior hides a conflicted inner life. He hates the difficult decisions he has to make, he misses his wife and child back home, and struggles to implement a new low-altitude ground attack strategy that's meeting resistance from high command. As the casualties mount and his squadron grows desperate for confidence and supplies, Kirby must lead his men into the Battle of Okinawa, where issues of strategy and leadership come to a head. Steal a birthday cake for today's friendly fire. It's the 1951 World War II classic, Flying Leathernecks. Welcome to Friendly Fire, a podcast that talks about a different war movie every week with uh, two movie nuts and a war history nut. <laughs> We're just tripping down the stairs on that open every time. <laughs> yeah, which one am I? Well, John, I mean, you're as much a movie nut as a, as a war history nut, I, I, I would say. I'm just a nut. Let's just call it as it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what did we watch today, gentlemen? Uh, today we watched 1951's Flying Leathernecks, which answers the question, uh, can you make and write a war movie built entirely around what stock footage you have available? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is built around... Like, they, they crash a plane at one point, and it's like they had some footage of a plane crashing, and then they set up the like the prop plane as that plane would have settled, didn't they? I thought that was a great sequence. They they sort of rocked it into place. Yeah, they custom bent those uh, those propellers to match the bent propellers of the real crash. I think that that was the sequence in which it kind of connected for me that that's what was going on. Initially, I was like, I was like, this is the early '50s equivalent of like cutting GoPro footage into your movie. I thought it was really fun. Uh, the whole dutching of the angles. You know, like, there's actor in plane, and then we're just going <laughs> to rotate the camera to, to demonstrate that he's diving or pulling up. Yeah, yeah. That was super fun. Although you notice that when the Japanese pilots are shot and their planes catch on fire, they show no reaction to the experience. Like, they're flying along, and then all of a sudden their plane bursts into flames, and they don't even register, like, disappointment on their faces. That's something I wanted to ask about, which was, like, I think this is the first war movie in the series that we've watched so far that makes the enemy completely unknowable. Yeah. And is that because, like, is that because that's sort of how you make a propaganda film? Like, it's it's best if you don't get to know your enemy through a propaganda film. It's better if they are unknowable and ruthless in the way that they're portrayed here. Like, is that part of the, the sauce? Uh, it may be that we're just getting lucky, but I was impressed for the for the time, 1951, at how they were unknowable, but they are, also weren't caricature. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think in the, I mean, a true propaganda film is going to make them look subhuman. Right. Hmm. And I think that was, that was the way that a lot of anti-Japanese propaganda 
worked, you know, made them just look like they were motivated by some kind of weird animal motivation instead of being methodical and, and somewhat businesslike. And even, even uh, toward the end of the film, when they were showing kamikazes, they didn't make them look like crazed madmen. <laughs> the every Japanese person in this film just looked like they were solving a math problem. Right. And, uh, you know this this film I think for its time was probably pretty gritty and realistic. It showed a lot of blood, yeah, and real dead bodies. I mean, they're not unracist toward the Japanese, but it's not a it's not a cartoonish racism. Well, even the way in which they you know they kept occupying, particularly like the Guadalcanal scenes, they kept occupying Japanese encampments that had been formerly Japanese, and they kind of were. I don't know, not, it's certainly not respectful, but like that scene where John Wayne has the, he walks out of the tent and he sees that there's a little sign there still written in a kanji letter and he grabs it off the wall and throws it down in disgust. He's mad at writing. But I mean, that is the type of thing that you would have, that, that would have happened in a, in a European theater film too. Sure. You grab the little Nazi thing and throw it on the ground. It's not, it's not like especially racist. It was, it almost felt like, he he recognizes them as an adversary and like a, a worthy adversary. Mm. Sure. And not just some kind of jungle monkey. Finish this flight schedule, will you? So we should talk about like the basics of what this movie is. It's basically following a a squad of marine Mustang pilots uh from Guadalcanal to No, no. Stop, oh boy, stop. you're gonna get not letters, Ben. You're gonna get so many letters. <laughs> Luckily, John and I are here to help. Ben. I'll just uh, I'll show myself out. You guys, you guys continue the podcast from here. How about let the plane nerds discuss? <laughs> well, there's actually um, there's actually a little bit. I did do a little bit of reading on this because in in films like this, particularly when you're using stock footage, there's a real continuity problem between like the best shots, right. the best in you know gun camera shots, and the best sort of historic photos and then what you can actually approximate in your, in your filming. And, and so you get these scenes like toward the end when they're, when they're on that big um, sort of raid of the ships, you know, they're all like supposed to be fully loaded with bombs. You know, it, it just is a beautiful shot of these uh, F4Us in formation, but none of them have any bombs. Right. And you see that a lot. Like there, there, there was a scene, I think they were strafing, they were doing one of their first close air support runs. They were supposed to be strafing the lines. And then all of a sudden, there were a couple of dive bombers in the shots, like yeah. not even the same type of aircraft. <laughs> and it was just like, those are great shots. We got to use them and just hope that the, that the majority of people don't recognize. So a lot of the footage is of F4Fs, a lot of the, you know, the uh, war footage. But a lot of the film, or all of the film stuff, those are F6Fs, which right. it, that's that's historically incorrect. That's the that end of pedantic rant. General Court's a tough thing to face when you're 22. Tough thing to face when you're 90. I mean, like, one of the big struggles in the film is that John Wayne's character is, is pushing for this kind of combat tactic that the brass doesn't like, right? He's, he's really into, like, flying in low and taking out enemy positions, like, in very close... Uh, proximity to the marine forces on the ground. 
he's kind of a maverick, right? Like that is not a generally accepted tactic among the Marines. Yeah, it's because so many of your own guys get killed in the process. That's why the brass was against it. So like the arc of the movie, if it's anything, is sort of about him kind of establishing that as a tactic that we're going to root for. And like, you know, at one point he has a conversation with the uh, general who's like sitting in a tent rocking away in a rocking chair like uh they're gonna they're gonna do this a couple more times so that the higher-ups see that it's working in a uh, practical context and eventually one or two wars from now that'll be the standard practice which i thought was pretty fun it felt a little dispassionate the way they were playing it like they were talking about this tactic like it was some kind of marine corps aviation tactic they were going to talk about in a in a briefing room and I, I kept waiting for John Wayne to step forward and be like, we've got to get out there and save our boys. They're dying. And we're, you know, like all these arguments that he had with his, with his XO about how they, how he was pushing them so hard and how they had to go back out on a sortie, another sortie right away. He never really gave that, that speech that would have made it all, that would have made his, um, his position unimpeachable that he was doing it for the grunts. The the like emotional arc of the movie is basically it's basically a treatise against emotional intelligence. Like the XOs the whole thing is like trying to back up the the guys in the in the squad and like he's always arguing for policies that will acknowledge what a hard thing they're going through and uh John Wayne is like having none of it. Suck it up. We got to win this war. It made it difficult right away because he shows up damaged, but you never hear or know his damage. Right. He's just a hard ass right away. And later on, you, you begin to understand that he's a guy who lost a lot of people under his command. And so, you know, he's one of those people that doesn't want to get... He's a farmer who doesn't want to name his cows, right? He wants to <laughs> fly his men into battle a little more dispassionately, right? That's a, a callback to a different oh, podcast, John. <laughs> uh, well, I think that early on in the film, when he, when John Wayne says that he was at Midway, yeah, anybody at the time, 51, would know that was the first real air battle of the Pacific where American pilots were, you know, were getting shot down. And so this is still pretty early on in the war. And certainly I, I, I felt like when he said that, that that, was sufficient explanation for him being like a little bit more hard bitten. Did anyone else think that it could be no one else besides Dan Aykroyd doing the voiceover in the beginning? Oh, it was so awful. It <laughs> it only happened just then and then maybe one other time in the film. It felt like an afterthought. Like normally you get bookended voiceovers and then like a little bit sprinkled throughout, but it didn't really have anything to do with the film. No, and he went on and on and on. Yeah, boilerplate patriotism was Dan Aykroyd's deal on that voiceover. <laughs> Here, the gentle surf which rolled on Waikiki occasionally drowned out the roar of planes overhead. Our, our valiant Marines in Guadalcanal digging up crystal head vodkas. <laughs> the, the, this film and the film that we watched last week, the submarine movie, they were so closely uh, related in structure. The relationship between the CEO of the plan that he's not fully revealing to the to the rest of the squad, like the a project, 
and the XO who's close to the crew who was passed over for promotion. Like, yeah. like the, the basic structure of it was so they, they were so cookie cutter of one another. I really want to find maybe through this very podcast, the er example of this theme, you know, that where the whole film is structured around this tension between somewhat soft hearted XO that gradually learns the hard truth, the like battle tactics of the CO that puts everyone at risk is actually what's needed in this war. And we can't be sentimental and we can't be soft. You, you could have switched whole scenes out of the two films. They both had that scene where the, the they're getting the party ready for the XO and he comes in and it's like, this is a bit awkward. <laughs> I am excited to get a larger sample size of films for this show to know whether or not like, was it just impossible for films of this era to to do anything besides create this sort of conflict amongst its characters? Like, was it totally unreasonable to expect a film in the 50s or early 60s to have any sort of nuanced conversation about, like, the nature of the war that they're fighting or any sort of misgivings about it? After we've watched 25 films, if fully 11 of them have this as their overstructure... I'm going to really be curious about is this <laughs> yeah. inherent in our idea of masculinity or is this particular mm. to this to this war and what our idea of this war was and how because it's possible that these films are trying to tell the audience at home yes you lost your husband or your brother or your father or your uncle in the war and it seems unjust and here's an example of, you know, here's a scene from the war where you see that the, that their sacrifice was necessary because the commanders, although it's never entirely clear what their plan is, they do have a plan. And in the end, we were victorious. Yeah, I mean, it's it's even present a little bit in Saving Private Ryan, right? Like the Edward Burns character's misgivings about about the plan don't really... They don't really get into him having misgivings about Tom Hanks, but I think eventually, eventually he's he's just mad at Tom Hanks, right? And Tom Hanks at that point is so resigned that he shrugs his shoulders and says, "Whatever, you know." Nobody's ducking these missions because of belly aches. We're all sick. For as unflinchingly patriotic as as the film like sort of pretends to be. The Griff character really is the heart of the thing, you know, as the as the lovable commander, as the commander that everyone appreciates more than the uh, than the John Wayne Kirby character. And like he even he actually gets some monologuing to do in the middle where he talks about like uh, each man's suffering belongs to everyone. That was way more, that was way deeper than than I was expecting for a film of this era or even of its type, you know, after, after an hour to get a monologue like that was totally shocking to me. That was like Barack Obama cribbed some of those lines for his famous democratic national convention speech. Yeah, I, th- I, I like. thought uh, I thought he was totally affecting in that scene. Well, and he yeah. he uh, he is revealed over the course of the film to be a real intellectual, right? He yeah. quotes Kipling. He's he you know they they have a brief little conversation about Freud. He he references that uh, the statistics 
the statistics work of that mathematician borked or belt barf love that guy <laughs> and i i always have trouble with john wayne in in roles like this because he's smirking he's always smirking even when he's like hard bitten yeah there's that little bit of like well i don't what you know i'm not even going to do a john wayne impression it's too easy but what was the actor's name? Ron Reed, Rex Reed. Robert Ryan uh, is is Griffin. Robert Ryan or Rex Reed. <laughs> uh, but you know he really is giving a pretty impassioned performance, and uh, you know, and it's bouncing off of John Wayne, who's just like, I don't know, he he just always feels a little bit out, uh, a little bit of a movie star. I think I disagree with you just a little bit. It feels like a more restrained John Wayne than I was expecting here. Like I was expecting a full-on like screenwriter drops his piece of paper into the John Wayne dialogue cubator and like it comes out the other side all John Wayne'd up. And I feel like he had himself dialed down to like a six mm-hmm. in a way that like I was expecting cartoonist John Wayne and I thought... Like, I could ride for him in this film. I thought he was good. This come bring your troubles to Papa attitudes. What's making them all act like a bunch of college kids? Well, that's what they are. Not out here, they aren't. This is where we separate the men from the boys. One question that leads me to asking is, um, do you have to like John Wayne to like this movie? Like, does it ride on his shoulders? I thought it was pretty fairly split between John Wayne and Robert Ryan in a way that that even if you don't like John Wayne, I think you can like the movie. In In many ways... John Wayne's character is not the main character because he has hasn't got much of a an arc, mm-hmm. you know. His main character development is that he gets promoted. <laughs> you know. He also gives his son a sword. Yeah. He's the only one you see at home and I think that's uh, an interesting aspect to his character too. Uh that was a weird uh, sort of interregnum in the film too, like you you you're following yeah. this sort of uh, you're in this really high pressure cooker situation with these guys. You don't know which guy is going to die next. And then you come into the tent and he's in there like right after the incredible confrontation where those two are about to go out and duke it out in the jungle, like man to man. And then uh, the next scene, he's like pretty merrily packing his bag. Like I'm going home. But then they're back in the States and, and, you know, he's got that wife and kids scene, which is kind of a movie ender, except there's no, if it had happened, it would have just been snipped the plot in half. And then they all, you know, they're all back to a different side of the war. And and that was a, I found it a little bit coitus interruptus. You know, what it felt like to me was the action movies of the late 80s and early 90s, where they've graduated Top Gun Academy they're at the at the champagne formal and then they get called out to the last mission right. you know for the very end right. like this is a movie format that felt oddly familiar mm-hmm. in that way mm-hmm. the beginning like when they kind of introduce the squad like they there is that weird around the horn where they show the the people at home that each member of the squad is is that uh, they're writing is to writing a letter to I was how did you guys feel about that i wasn't you know i i i, I noticed it and and thought it was kind of an, an interesting that isn't a thing that i'd seen exactly that way where where yeah where they're they're being introduced and and through the through the kind of artifice of that writing a letter home we get that brief moment where we see everybody at home including the the indian characters really really <laughs> strange little moment of 
He says he can't write for quite a while, but he knows that his ma and pa will know that he will act so that they can know there'll be no shame brought on his lodge and to tell his sisters to take good care of his horses. And the two, like Indian mom and dad, standing there in the agent's office just completely, I mean, so much more implacable than even the Japanese just like no <laughs> registering nothing. But at the same time, like, let's talk a little bit about that Indian character because he's not just the guy who gets killed first, as I was expecting. He has a fairly developed backstory. Yeah. He is an equal in the crew to everyone. He is uh, heroically wounded, uh, crashes his plane toward the end uh, while pancaking it, I guess. And is an equal to everyone else in a way that I was not expecting. If you were to tell me uh, we were going to watch a 1951 war movie and one of the guys was going to be Native American, I would be like, yep, first one to die. (laughs) Well, and also, you know, a Native American officer and pilot. Yeah, yeah, totally. I thought that that was great, to its credit. And and he was Navajo, right? Mm -hmm. Which, uh, those were the guys that were doing the code transmission. So it it must have been... Must have been pretty tough to like get out of doing that and doing something else. Also, just just very jarring to have John Wayne have a non uh, antagonistic relationship with a, <laughs> a Native American on screen. You think out of you think out of habit, he probably had to retake some stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just kept drawing his revolver on the guy. It's like, no, no, John, John. Schedule another mission. 1500. Same target. Uh, Roger. This film has a couple of different conflicts. It's the conflicts between uh, our troops and the Japanese. It's the conflict between uh, the John Wayne and Robert Ryan character. It's also the struggle for the soldiers to get supplies. They they seem constantly outgunned, undersupplied and frustrated by it throughout in a way that I thought was great. Like so often you get the the patriotic film that that shows our our war heroes, you know, with the best technology and all of it. And these guys are like dirty and struggling and having to make refueling gear out of dishwashers. Like that was I thought a great sea story throughout. When that uh amphibious plane puts down and it's going to take out some of the take some of the injured men out and it gets uh it gets shelled from from a Japanese warship it's yeah. like so demoralizing and you can just really feel like how how spirit crushing that must be just how isolated they must feel yeah. on this island i think the film did a really good job with that like frustration and and fear throughout like it wasn't always great and it definitely wasn't comfortable well, you know, my dad, you guys may actually not know this, but my dad flew supply aircraft in World War II in the Japanese theater and uh, flew supplies in DC-3s or C-47s, flew supplies into mm-hmm. all these islands during these battles. The order of operations was you fly low over the strip and if the, you know, there are strips carved out of the jungle, and if the U.S., troops were in charge of the strip they would drive a jeep to the end of the runway with an american flag on it and if there wasn't a jeep with an american flag on it then you you 
didn't land because it wasn't, they hadn't secured mm. control. And my dad told a story about landing on one of these like strips carved out of the jungle. And as he's still hurtling down the runway, a guy runs out of the jungle, jumps into the Jeep, peels out and, uh, <laughs> you know, and like splits. And my dad has to get down to the end of the runway and bullets are pinging into the plane. And he swings the tail around, guns it back down the runway and takes off. But he said a lot of the time they would land and the plane would keep moving. There'd be a, a loadmaster in the back and they'd pop open the door and they'd just be hucking crates out of the back hmm. onto the runway crates of ammunition and, and aid, you know, like uh first aid and stuff. And uh, they'd just, they'd huck the crates out as they were, as they were taxiing and then burn it, uh, get out of there right away. So he, he was part of that supply effort. So whenever I see those scenes in any film, like my dad and I, when we would watch more, more movies together, anytime there'd be a DC three. And it was always in the background of one of these Pappy Boeington films, you know, there'd be a bunch of guys having some sort of soccer game or whatever. And there'd be a DC three landing in the background and we'd both go, yeah, you know, cheer at the, <laughs> at the resupply. That story is, uh, is great, but I, I know it's not true, John, because you're not allowed to get up until the plane is done taxiing. Mm, that's true. Experience. That's true. You have to keep your seatbelt fastened. <laughs> my grandfather, uh, flew in the European theater and I got to, uh, I got to call my mom up and ask about, uh, what he flew. Cause now I'm really curious. Yeah. Well, just, just say Mustang, you know, that, that can be your nickname for this podcast. We'll just call you Mustang from now on. <laughs> I love the idea that we're going to get accidental call signs as we record this show. <laughs> you can't name yourself. Someone else has to name you. Mustang is one of the most insulting I can imagine, so I guess that'll be mine. <laughs> Fellas, I think we looked a little jerky when our new CEO got his first hinge at us. The aspect of this film that's clearly patriotic, and here's another interesting thing, right? The very initial scene, I'm not, not scene, like the first title that comes on the screen, RKO Pictures or whatever, Howard Hughes production. Yeah. Is it black and white? It's a black and white yeah. reel. And then it immediately switches to Technicolor. But you hear that you hear that score, that orchestra come in with the you know, they're giving you sort of the dramatic sweeping and then they switch over to the Marine Corps hymn and then the yeah. Marine Corps hymn kind of peters out and you hear throughout the film little like that Marine Corps theme come back into the soundtrack little by little. Yeah, they turn it into kind of a leitmotif anytime a marine, like a super patriotic marine thing happens. Does something marine yeah, like raises a flag or something. Anytime you see someone's leather neck. <laughs> In spite of all of the... Um all of the overt sort of stuff that we would expect in a in a film like this, the flags and the Marine Corps theme and so forth. There also was never really the speech about how we were doing this to make the world safe for democracy or how uh, the folks back home were counting on us or, you know, there wasn't a lot of jingoism that, that like that voiceover at the beginning really set, set me up for feeling like, Oh my God, they're going to preach to me through this whole film about this, you know, this kind of, yeah, but yeah. it felt really tacked on and it felt like something that because of the era the movie was made at, at the very end, they were like, well, we should have something in here about making the world safe for democracy. <laughs> 
but it never it yeah. never appears anywhere in the actual script or in the way the film lays itself out. Yeah, that feels like a focus group choice for sure. Like th- someone watched the film at the studio and went, "This isn't patriotic enough." You know, decades of war movies have conditioned us into expecting that sort of overarching message. If we had a modern war film about Guadalcanal and the Marine pilots who fought there, and it was only about the conflict between the two main characters and it had nothing to say about the the nature of war itself, I feel like we'd I feel like we would reject it because it would feel incomplete. John Wayne's reputation in this era makes me think that in the early 1950s, I can't imagine them feeling that strong about having to justify the war. I bet that that tension wasn't evident to them going in, you know? Like, of course we don't need to justify World War II. We kicked ass in World War II. And then I see it and it's like, oh, this kind of like, this kind of makes it seem like that wasn't the greatest thing in the world. The result is all the justification we need. It'd be interesting to see when the principal photography on this began. I don't get the sense that Howard Hughes was ever much of a, you know, a propagandist. But McCarthy gave his famous, uh, I have here in my hand, a piece of paper with a list of communists working in the State Department. He gave that speech in about 1950. So the tone in the country had already switched by the time this film came out to this communist paranoia and this sense that America was the last bulwark against uh, this Asiatic communism that was that was going to sweep our shores and and steal our daughters and so forth. One of the conflicts that you don't see on screen is that John Wayne was pro-blacklist and Robert Ryan was not. Neither was the director. Another one of these dichotomies where the where in actual fact the actors were yeah. Uh, diametrically opposed politically. Well, you guys want to hear my uh, most hilariously pedantic goof from uh, from the IMDb page? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are we going to call this segment Tracers? <laughs> I feel like that'd be a good name for it. My tracer for this episode. When Major Kirby is just home from the war, he takes a letter from the mailbox which in the full screen shot is shown to have a six cent stamp. Six cent stamps weren't issued until 1949, four years after the war ended. Oh. (laughs) How could they get something like that wrong? I will note that Major Kirby's handwriting was some seriously elegant handwriting. Like, really softens the blow of a a dead family member, that's for sure. (laughs) But like, that character just did not strike me as having... Emily Post handwriting. You write enough of those letters, I guess you're well-practiced in the penmanship department. Well, that begs the question, guys. Did you have a guy? Who's your guy, Ben? Um, so my guy in this uh, was uh, Clancy the Line Chief. Yeah. Um, he, was kind of the, he was kind of the comedic relief of the film. And uh, I just, uh, he was definitely my favorite character by a mile because his whole thing is just stealing stuff for them. <laughs> And uh, and I thought it was going to be like one of those things where they do like three beats of him stealing something, but they do like 11 beats of him stealing stuff. <laughs> There's a like, great Clancy moment towards the end where Kirby runs into him again after he's been demoted. And the, and the, 
the dialogue is so efficient here. Like Kirby's yeah. like, MPs finally got to you, right? Clancy's like, yep, MPs. And then they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. It was so good. I, they... The movie that they didn't give us is the court martial movie with Clancy. Like I would watch an entire movie that was about that trial. I would watch the the whole film from Clancy's perspective. Yeah. It would be great. <laughs> Give me all the Clancy, definitely. And that character, too, is one that we see reoccurring over and over in, in war movies, the hyper-resourceful supply sergeant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's like a major subplot of Catch-22. I think there's got to be an earliest version of that, too. The and I And I imagine it's a World War II... Thing. I can't I can't picture a film from before World War II that would have had a guy like that who's going around stealing from other Marines and like wild goose chasing the MPs <laughs> and just, you know, and it's all justified because he's providing for his guys and that's his job. And Clancy is red from Shawshank Redemption. He's the guy who knows mm-hmm. how to get things. Whoa. And if it means stealing a dishwasher from the guys on the other side of the base, he's going to do it. So is Clancy your guy too, John? No, you know, there was a, the character in the film and, and kind of maybe the only place he sticks out is right at the end. He's the one that questions, that vocally questions Griffith's decision to send Cowboy to his death. Mm. He's one of the fighter pilots. He's blonde and he's got a kind of Emilio Estevez haircut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like sort of a high top fade a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, except except it's grown out a little. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it's it's sticking straight up all around. And he was a character that every time they would go in, like I don't know if you noticed, but every time they would go in on a run, it kind of showed the same loop of John Wayne. He always gritted yep. his teeth the same way. And yeah. I think it was just the same footage every time. But this actor was one that the camera really loved in the cockpit. He was always the one that was, he was like third in the strafing run and it seemed like his bombs were always the one that found their targets. He kind of, and, and for a while there, I was like, Oh, don't let that guy get killed. Like he's really mm-hmm. getting the job done, but he never had his moment where he, where he stood up and, you know, where he wrote a letter home or where he asked somebody to make sure they took care of his sweetheart. So he never marked himself for death. Yeah. Right. He was never, he never red shirted himself. And all the way through the film, it was just like, this guy's a survivor. This guy's going to survive this. And like, he's kind of kicking ass throughout the whole movie. So by the end, I really felt like he was sort of my mascot. How about you, Adam? Do you have a guy? It's hard not to pick Clancy. I mean, it's hard not to think about, you know, if you were drafted, what your ideal scenario would be. Like, I think. You know, I've always wanted to be a pilot. It would be great to be a pilot. If you had to fight in a war, I think being in an airplane is probably the way to do it. I say this because my chances of ever doing so are are none. <laughs> like, that that always seemed like the dream to me. But man, to, to be the mechanic, to be the guy that that fixed the stuff, like, that seems like a more a more contemporary interest to me. Like, the wrench turner... The, the guys who keep them flying, like, that sounds like that's more my speed. And and Clancy's whole vibe is something that I can really get behind. Like, as a serious, seriously trying to get stuff done, but in a way that, that isn't too serious about it uh, in in sort of personality. 
But if I can't be Clancy because he was already taken, I'm going to choose to be uh, Sourdough, who you might remember as the dead ringer for Will Ferrell later on in the movie. (laughs) He's the guy that redirects the squadron to defend the fleet from the kamikazes. And he does this great, like Alec Baldwin style, turn to camera with like the radio in front of his hand. And he's like, I got to get you guys to defend the fleet. There's these kamikazes coming in from everywhere. I know you guys are on another mission, but fuck that mission. Like, <laughs> you, got, you guys have new orders now. And there was something really, like, to be the messenger in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like, like to, to have to deliver those new orders, I thought was great. And to have those orders come from Will Ferrell, I thought was the best part of all. So if I can't be, if I can't be Clancy, I want to be Will Ferrell. Two very different roles in the in the scope of the of of wartime. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that Clancy, if you were a soldier, if you were even one of the pilots, Clancy would be the guy you looked to, right? He'd right. be the one yeah. that made you feel at home and comfortable, and yeah. he'd be the smiling face waiting for you when you got done. Yeah, uh, takes that role really the, seriously. But like the faceless voice over the radio that says. Abort your mission and concentrate all your firepower hither. I think I mostly wanted a reason to talk about Sourdough, the Will Ferrell doppelganger. Like, let's be honest. I just wanted, I didn't want this show to go by without referring to him personally. I would like to bring our attention right back to one of the major characters of the film, which was <laughs> Perspiration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> major Perspiration, I believe, was his rank. They were covered in sweat the entire film they probably just had a guy on set with like a squirt bottle going around making sure everybody was damp enough before the camera started rolling that was a great way that that everyone looked so uncomfortable and it also played really well against the few little comforts that they were able to provide for themselves like when they were making the jungle juice when they found that cake like those little victories meant so much in a in a scene that looked like it was awful. Like everyone's sweating to death. Everyone's super dirty and bloody. Like God, a sheet pan with a cake. Like how great is that? I love those little moments in the film. Those little details. What do you know? It is a cake. Uh, I suggest you eat it in a hurry. A slight beef may develop any minute. Well, guys, do you want to uh, select our next film? Well, I have to insist that that we venture forth from. Uh, unto a different war. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know there are a lot of World War II movies out yeah. there, but we should really make this a survey of, of uh, all the great wars. You're advocating that we change theaters, maybe? Yeah, I, or I think or that's something. fair, John, but but uh, we currently have 23 war movies on our on our list, on our little running list, and... I'm just like at a glance going to guess that you probably added 10 World War II movies to it. Oh, I did. <laughs> this yeah, is all yeah, your fault. That's true. Yeah. So uh, let me let me shuffle it around a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to move all the World War II movies to the bottom and we'll just give you a, we'll give you a range of numbers that is all non-World War II. If you uh if you give me a guess between uh 1 and 9, I think uh I think we can pick something that isn't a World War II film. Uh, let's say eight. Okay, you have, you have selected 
First Blood. Yes. Oh, yes. God. First yes. Blood. Is that even a war movie? Oh, I'm so pumped for this. It's definitely an edge case, and there's going to be some of those, I think. I mean, if we ever watch, um, you know, Crimson Tide, for example, that's a movie that is not really about a war, but it's a bunch of Navy sailors in a war-like environment doing battle. So I, I'm not really sure what the qualification is, but this is on the list. So. If a movie references von Clausewitz, then it's a war movie. <laughs> That's my rule. Wow. Adam is so excited about doing First Blood that I would never take it away from him. I would quit the show I, I if know, he took it away from me. Uh, I know that he's a huge, huge Rambo fan. Yeah, uh you are not a big fan of this film, as I remember, John. Well, I mean, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of things about the Rambo franchise that uh, a lot of uh, lot of reasons for me to have have some serious doubts. Well, I want to be clear: I don't ride for the Rambo franchise, but I do believe First Blood is a great film, and and it and it, and it should be insulated from the films that followed in the series. Your and my dispute, I think, was over whether Richard Crenna was a good, uh, a good special forces colonel, and you were very pro Richard Crenna, and I was very con Richard Crenna. I was I was pro Crenna when, look, we're gonna have to get into this during the next episode, but <laughs> okay. uh, but I liked him better than the idea of Kirk Douglas, who it was supposed to be. Yeah, we can talk about so. this next episode. Yeah, let's. Uh, we're gonna let's do, do a, then, We're gonna do a tight twenty on Kirk Douglas versus Richard <laughs> Crenna in the next episode. Uh, I'll, I, I guess I'll be the uh, the uh, third party that doesn't have a, a dog in the fight. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, John. I'll be looking forward to that stateside wingding. Well, uh, we will be back at you next week with First Blood. We should thank Rob Schulte, our producer-editor, for uh, all the hard work he does on the show. Uh, these uh, these can't be easy to edit, so uh, <laughs> so uh, we really appreciate what Rob is bringing to the table. And uh, thanks, Rob. What else? What else do we need a Do we need a hashtag? Is there a hashtag going? I guess hashtag friendly fire is probably good. Anyways, uh, we'll see you online, and uh, we'll see you next week. You tune into next week's episode. You better remember one thing. A good supply of body bags. I'm going to say something dizzy. If and when we meet stateside. Will you get drunk with me as my guest? I'll be happy to come aboard. Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast. Hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. Produced by Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter, at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate.
Can we talk about for a second how great his luggage is? I think this is the only war movie <laughs> podcast where you'll get this moment. But <laughs> goddamn, John Wayne's luggage in this scene. Fucking fantastic. Be on the lookout for a Friendly Fire merch, the $400 duffel with hand-painted name. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.